Hello, this is your host, Trevor Furness. And before this episode begins, I just want to give you a quick reminder to head on over to patreon.com slash the march of history. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the march of history. Go there and add your own contribution to the march of history in any amount that you can afford. You know, obviously, the more the better. It helps to fund the March of History and helps us to improve the podcast. But even if you can only afford 20 cents a month, everything still counts. So please go there and give a contribution to the March of History so we can produce better episodes and episodes more often. And I understand that not everybody is in a financial position to contribute to a podcast, even if it is their favorite podcast. So if you can't afford to contribute to the March of History, I do understand but I ask that you go to the Apple Review Store, Apple Podcast Store, and leave a review, something nice about the podcast that you like with five stars, and that can be your contribution instead of a financial one. Thank you, and then I'll talk to you in the episode. Welcome to episode 44 of the March of History. I am your host, Trevor Furness, and we're not even going to recap last episode. We're going to get right into episode 44 because finally we are leaving Rome behind, which I never thought I would say (laughs) in an excited way, but we are headed back to Gaul and back to our protagonist, Julius Caesar, who we've been away from far too many episodes. The last military campaign we talked about with Caesar in Gaul was the campaign against the Belgae. That was in 57 BCE. That was when he said that all of Gaul was pacified and the rest of the events that we've been talking about in Rome have happened both during that time and after that time. Now, just to give you a timeline on this, so 57 BCE is when Caesar defeats the Gaul or defeats the Belgae. And the spring of 56 BCE is when the Conference of Lucca happens. And then January of 55 BCE is when Crassus and Pompey are made consuls. And 55 is when they pass all the legislation to extend Caesar's command and to give themselves provinces. So with that timeline in place to give you an idea of where the events in Rome fit into the events of Caesar in Gaul, let's get back into it. Like I said, Caesar claimed that Gaul was pacified at the end of his second book of the Gallic Commentaries. This was not true, and what's more, Caesar probably knew that it wasn't true. He probably said this simply for political reasons with elections coming up, but you never know, it is possible he really thought it. What we do know is that there aren't any major campaigns like in the previous years, you know, in at first, he had had the Helvetii campaign and the campaign against Ariovistus in the very first year. Then he had the massive campaign against the Belgae the next year. This year, coming out of the Conference of Lucca, there is no major campaign. So from Caesar's perspective, maybe if they're just smaller campaigns, it seems like Gaul is pacified. I don't know. Reading it, it seems very confusing because he says, oh, Gaul is pacified. And the next thing you know, he's fighting a bunch of wars, even if they are on a smaller scale. Even going back to the autumn of 57 BCE, when Caesar had defeated the Belgae that summer, even then there was warfare going on, even if Caesar wasn't involved in it. 
Caesar had sent one of his lieutenants, Servius Sulpicius Galba, with the 12th Legion to take the St. Bernard Pass. Galba, just fun fact, will become one of Caesar's assassins on the Heights of March. And just a little bit of background on that, Galba's grievances with Caesar, or at least perceived grievances, were many. There was a dispute over debt with Caesar, and also, just for good measure, Caesar slept with Galba's wife. So I have often wondered how there was not more repercussions for Caesar sleeping with everyone's wife that nobody tried to get back at him. Maybe I thought that they did try and were just unable, but I never had read about anything where somebody who we know Caesar slept with their wife then turned around and got back at Caesar and got their revenge. It turns out that person does exist and his name is Galba. And Caesar slept with his wife, but Galba, I guess, would get the last laugh and becomes one of Caesar's assassins. How much Caesar sleeping with his wife had to do with that, I don't know. Probably not that much, because in Rome, again, it wasn't they weren't love matches. But still, it's fascinating to see. Galba had a lot of other things he was mad about Caesar for, too. And one more fun fact about this man Galba, he's actually the great-grandfather of the future emperor by the same name. Now, in this campaign to subdue the St. Bernard Pass, Galba won a series of small victories, and the local tribe surrendered, he took hostages from them, and he decided to winter his troops in, in that area. Now, this peace that he had felt that he had, Galba, didn't last long, because the locals pull a fast one on him, they surround his winter quarters in a valley, which... I don't understand why you would possibly winter your army in a village where you're surrounded by tall cliffs, right? You know, <laughs> you're not in a very good spot. You can be trapped in that valley very easily. And Galba was. Pretty soon the locals retreat from the town and all along the cliff tops, all along the valley are Gallic tribes that know these hills very well. And they begin attacking the village that Galba's in. According to Caesar, Galba manages to do a counterattack and staves off disaster and pushes the locals back, and he wins with that counterattack, but it looked very hairy there for a while. And so Galba decides to withdraw to friendly territory, and in the Gallic commentaries, this is framed as a sort of victory, but really it's a defeat. Galba was sent there to subdue the St. Bernard Pass. He didn't do that. He had to retreat in the end. He didn't lose any battles, per se, but he had to pull out. So maybe you could call it a tactical victory and a strategic defeat. But that was a very minor campaign. So uh, I think it still holds true what Caesar says, that in general, Gaul was pacified. But then something happens that changes all that. In either the late spring or early summer of 56 BCE, coming out of the Conference of Lucca or just after the Conference of Lucca, Caesar engages in a much larger campaign. Not larger than his previous campaigns with the Belgae and the Helveti and Ariovistus, but still definitely larger than that St. Bernard Pass one. You see, young Crassus was in command of the 7th Legion, and they were wintering in Gaul by the Atlantic Ocean. And young Crassus and the 7th Legion were still there in this area when a sort of incident happens that sparks war again in Gaul. You see, the area that they were encamped in didn't have much food, and so young Crassus sends out his prefects and his military tribunes to collect food. And when these officers arrived at a tribe called the Veneti, they were promptly taken hostage. The Veneti took the officers hostage, and the Veneti demand the release of hostages they had given to Rome. 
and said that they would hold these officers of the Roman army in exchange for the hostages that Rome had of theirs. Of course, Rome doesn't play these kind of games. They are not about to do a prisoner swap. Think about the precedent that was set, that all you got to do is take some Roman hostage, at least some officers, and you can get your hostages back. And then why do you want your hostages back? Probably because you're planning on going to war or you don't want to be subservient to Rome. That's unacceptable in the Roman mind, and it's certainly unacceptable in Caesar's mind. Now, the Veneti as a people were unique, to say the least. They were a seafaring people, so Caesar really hasn't dealt with people like this in Gaul yet. They lived in what is modern southern Brittany, and they were very influential along the coast, and they all lived along the coast. That's where their major cities were. And the Veneti often traded with the peoples on the island of Britain. Now, the other tribes that are in the area of the Veneti see what the Veneti are doing, and they quickly follow suit, which is not good for the Romans. And pretty soon, all the local tribes begin meeting and taking oaths to support each other. And this is just bad news for the Romans, because it looks like the beginnings of an uprising. So, young Crassus sees that this is a budding problem that is quickly burning out of control. He alerts Caesar. Caesar, at the time, says that he's far away in the commentaries. I'm guessing he's in Lucca or somewhere else. I think he was getting ready to go to Illyricum when this happened as well and, and diverts his course, but that's from the top of my head, so don't quote me on that one. Caesar, in turn, orders young Crassus to build a fleet. He wants ships. He wants him to recruit sailors, they have to recruit helmsmen, and there's a lot more things to provisioning an army. I mean, the Romans traditionally had land forces. That's where they felt comfortable, was infantry and infantry fighting on the land. Building a fleet is out of the typical Roman comfort zone, especially when it's going to sail on the Atlantic, and this is a huge undertaking for the Romans and for Caesar, and there's a lot of work to be done, so Caesar sets young Crassus to doing this. And Caesar himself hurries to join them as soon as he can, but like I said, he's a far distance off. Now, the Veneti see these preparations for full-scale war and suddenly come to the realization that the Romans are not going to trade back these hostages easily, which almost seems naive that they even thought that this would work, that they would think that they could seize Roman officers and just trade them back and it would be no harm, no foul. <laughs> you know, they almost, the way Caesar puts it is the Veneti almost seems surprised that the Romans are declaring war over this, that they thought that this would be a much simpler transaction. And suddenly they see the Romans preparing for all out war against them and they're kind of in shock. But the Veneti, I mean, they're not helpless, so they say, all right, well, if it's going to be war, then war it is. And they begin marshalling their fleet and gathering food and fortifying their towns against the Romans. Now, Caesar at this point is very concerned that this rebellion will spread beyond the locality where it started. So he begins marshalling all of his forces to march on pretty much a, a large portion of Gaul. Labienus, his right-hand man, is sent with most of the cavalry to keep the Belgic people in check, the ones that he recently fought and conquered. There's rumors at this time that the, the Belgic peoples are inviting Germans over the Rhine, which is classic. You know, Germans coming over the Rhine since ancient times. It is not something new to the two world wars. <laughs> but in this case, they're being invited over, or at least that's the rumor. So Caesar wants to nip that one in the bud, so sends Labienus, his best sub-commander and right-hand man, 
to go make sure that they don't join this rebellion and that they don't invite Germans over the Rhine. Young Crassus is sent with seven cohorts and some cavalry to Aquitania, which is basically southwestern France, to keep them in check and stop them from joining this rebellion. And Quintus Titurius Sabinus is sent with three legions to modern Normandy in modern-day France. And uh, Decimus Brutus is put in charge of the fleet. He takes over for young Crassus. And Caesar orders this Decimus Brutus, which is not the same as the Brutus that's like a son to Caesar, and assassinates Caesar. This is a different Brutus. This Brutus also assassinates Caesar, but it's not the one who's like a son to him. And I do realize these Roman names can be very confusing. They're very similar. A lot of these people are related to each other. They have similar family names. And there's just so many people. It's like a Game of Thrones books on steroids. So if you are getting lost with the names, I do apologize, but this is Roman history. It can't be helped. Anyway, Caesar orders this Decimus Brutus to set out against the Veneti ASAP, and Caesar follows with the rest of the army that he hasn't sent on these various missions around Gaul. So at this point, Caesar has marshaled all of his forces in Gaul, all ten legions. He's moved quickly. But the Veneti are a unique and tricky foe. For one, they're not on the land. I mean, they are on the land. They have cities, right? But that's not where their military forces are. That's not where you have to defeat them to really defeat their power. But this is made more complicated by the fact that they live on the coast and have these very unique towns. These towns are built on kind of what I would call promontories out into the Atlantic Ocean. And at high tide... They can only be approached by ship, meaning the city is surrounded by water. But at low tide, the water is too low for a ship to safely approach, and yet the town is still mostly surrounded by water. It's just shallow water. So this makes sea attacks very difficult because you have a shorter window, and land attacks near impossible because there's, you're just, there's water surrounding this town. So whether you attack by land or sea, it's going to be an awkward attack. It's not what the Romans are used to. In fact, the Romans aren't even used to tides. In the Mediterranean, there's hardly any tide. I mean, I, I even looked it up. It's like one to three centimeters, depending on the position you're at, versus maybe up to three feet in the Atlantic Ocean. So this is something that the Romans just aren't familiar with in general, are tides. But the Romans are not ones to be discouraged, so they go ahead and put these towns under siege anyway. And they build all sorts of different types of siege works, including Caesar describes a huge breakwater as high as the town walls itself to keep out the rising tide and allow them to continue to attack on land. But the issue is that the second the Veneti see this and get a bit nervous that the Romans might succeed in storming their town, they bring in all their ships and they escape with, Caesar says, all of their possessions onto these ships and they just sail down the coast to the nearest promontory town that they have and they all offload there and so the romans get no booty get no i mean they're looking for slaves and prisoners and they miss their chance to really strike at the veneti so this is really the, the strategy the veneti take against the romans it's not necessarily a winning strategy it's it's more to keep them alive to keep them from being defeated by the romans and to drag out this war as long as possible and it works for most of the summer, the Veneti just, every time the Romans close in on one of these towns, they just sail away to the next town, and the Romans can't get their hands on any Veneti. 
So after doing this for a while, Caesar and the Romans kind of just give up for a while because there's just no point in building all these elaborate siege works just to invade a town that's empty by the time they get in there. Now you may be wondering, where is Decimus Brutus with his fleet? This whole time that Caesar's wasting his whole summer chasing the Veneti from coast town to coastal town, where is this fleet that Decimus Brutus is supposed to be building? The answer is, it, one, it takes a long time to build a fleet. They had to build one from scratch, and they commandeer or at least get other allies to, to bring their ships as well. So it's part allied ships, part Roman ships, just like the Roman armies always were. But they finally do get this fleet together, and the fleet begins to struggle. And the Romans just aren't ready to engage this fleet against the Veneti yet because, well, there's a number of things. One, the Atlantic Ocean is much rougher than the Mediterranean. The Romans are not used to this. It's an unfamiliar body of water too. They don't they just don't understand it as well as they do the Mediterranean. Take the issue of tides, for example. The Romans don't even know about tides. I mean, maybe somebody in Rome knows about tides, but in general it's not institutional knowledge for them. They don't do much sailing on the Atlantic coast. At least the military doesn't. On top of that, the Romans have issues with navigation and finding their way around this coastline. They're not familiar with the coastline. The size of the ocean's huge and frightening. There's strong currents, and Caesar says there's very few harbors, all of which combine to make a difficult experience for the Romans. And the Veneti are experts at navigating this area, experts at you know knowing where all the harbors are, knowing the tides, understanding everything. They grow up here. They're a seafaring people. Add to this difficulty the fact that the Veneti ships are custom-made for these waters, and they use sails, not oars, and the sails are actually made of animal skins rather than cloth or canvas. And Caesar says that's because the, the winds are real high along the Atlantic, much higher than the Mediterranean, and he doesn't think that a canvas sail would be able to hold this wind power versus animal skins are much tougher. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's kind of the reasoning Caesar gives. But the Veneti ships are also much shallower at the bottom than the Roman ships, which means they can navigate in shallow waters, which, as you can see, they need when it's low tide and they have to get into their coastal towns. Their ships are also always made of oak, which is a very strong wood, and the Romans found that it was too strong for them to ram. That was the typical way that not just the Romans, but everyone in the Mediterranean battled by ship. They rammed each other and they boarded each other's ships. Well, they found that the Veneti ships were this thick oak and too strong to ram. If the Roman ships rammed them, it did nothing. Now, the second way the Romans would typically attack in a naval battle, they had issues with as well, because it's one thing to board a ship that's roughly the same size as yours. But the Veneti ships were much bigger than the Roman ships, much taller than the Roman ships. This meant that it was difficult for the Romans to climb up onto the Veneti ships and that when they came close, the Romans had difficulty throwing spears and shooting arrows and launching rocks up at the Veneti. And the Veneti found it much easier to do the same from the high ground. That became the issue. Basically, the Veneti in any naval engagement had the high ground and the Romans had a tough time climbing up their ships and getting in there to actually fight them in hand-to-hand -hand combat. So after struggling with these problems for a while... Finally, the Roman ingenuity comes out, and the Romans create a device to give them an advantage. This device is a sharpened hook on the end of a long pole, and Caesar describes this and says it's not unlike the hooks used to tear down walls during sieges. 
This is something that I guess any Roman would understand. Oh, okay, it's one of those. <laughs> you know, from modern ears, we don't really know what that looks like. But he describes it as being a, a sharpened hook on the end of a pole, maybe ropes on it as well. And they use these hooks to pull down and tear at the enemy rigging. It basically tossed the hook up onto the enemy rigging, which is what holds the sail up, and they would start pulling at it. And that's why the hook has to be sharp. And Caesar even describes at times them, I guess, having a rope on the hook and just kind of rowing away from the Veneti ship and then just tearing down through the weight of the ship pulling at the rigging, tearing down the whole sail. This makes it so the Veneti ships can't move because they don't even have oars with them. They're completely reliant on the wind. Once their sails are useless, the Roman ships can surround them one by one and with a determined boarding party get on board the Veneti ships, which is still difficult because they're much higher, but it's still easier than when they have a sail and can move around. So the day of the major naval battle finally comes late in the summer and it takes place along the coast, which means that Caesar and his army can gather on the coast. Caesar describes them gathering on the hills and heights, which I guess means cliffs, and maybe, I guess hills is self-explanatory, but heights I would think means cliffs, and they can actually watch the battle from these high points. And this is one of my favorite images of the Gallic Wars, of just Caesar, his officers, and a lot of the Roman army sitting on these heights, sitting on these hills, and watching a massive naval battle happen below them and just cheering on their side as it happens. This is something that happens a few times in the Gallic Wars, but typically it's with cavalry. It'll be the cavalry of the Romans engaging against the cavalry of some Gallic tribe, fighting each other in the kind of no-man's zone between both armies with both sides cheering. It happens a number of times, but this is the only time it happens in a naval battle, and it's just great to imagine it. And it's something that I wish I could have been there to see. And something to take into account is that Caesar makes the point that the fact that he was there and that the entire army was there watching made it so that all of the Roman soldiers on board these ships wanted to do their best because they knew their commander was watching. If there was ever a chance to risk your life for a promotion, it was now while the, the supreme commander is watching. And nobody wants to suffer from a bad reputation from having the entire army see you do something cowardly. So everybody's on their best behavior and acting their most brave, knowing that the entire army is watching them. So the Romans begin by using their new hook strategy, and it starts working. They're tearing down Veneti rigging, they're attacking Veneti ships, they're boarding them, and the Veneti don't like this one bit. You know, the second they get their rigging pulled down, they're just sitting ducks, they're helpless. And like Caesar says, the Romans were far superior when it came to hand-to-hand -hand fighting. So once the Romans could immobilize them and get on their ships, it was game over. So after a few ships are taken down this way, the Veneti just decide, we don't want any part of this. And they start to try to run away or, or sail away, really. <laughs> but here's where Caesar's luck strikes again. So often throughout the life of Caesar... You see how lucky he is, and here's one of those instances, right as the Veneti make the decision to sail away in mass, the wind dies completely. They are in the doldrums, and they have no oars, and they're sitting ducks. The Romans presumably are still tearing down their rigging in case the wind does pick up, but they don't even need to at this point. All they need to do is wait for these ships to drift apart and pick them off one by one. 
almost like the the Romans being a, a pack of wolves hunting these much larger ships. You could imagine them as like buffalo and try to isolate one that's away from the herd and surround it and take it down. And one by one, the Romans go from ship to ship, tearing down the rigging, boarding the ships, killing all the people on the on board the ships. And this goes from 10 a.m. in the morning with all the Romans and Caesar watching on the hills and heights until sunset. It's a big victory for the Romans, and the fighting power of the Veneti is wiped out after this battle. They come and surrender to Caesar, and Caesar's determined to make an example out of them. He says in the commentaries, and, and he says this in third person, as he always does, he says, quote, Caesar decided that their punishment must be severe to make these barbarian people uphold the law of nations more carefully in future. So he executed all the Senate of the Veneti and sold the rest of the people into slavery, end quote. And these senators, according to Adrian Goldsworthy, were actually beheaded. So you can just imagine that sight. Hundreds of senators, the most eminent citizens of the Veneti, the most august and powerful people, all lined up and beheaded by the Roman army at Caesar's order. I mean, this makes ISIS look tame, right? <laughs> ISIS sends out videos of them beheading one person, which is I'm not belittling that. It's horrific. But here is Caesar and the Romans beheading hundreds of senators. And in the ancient world, this is not a war crime. You write about this in manuals, in the Gala commentaries, and you send it back to Rome. And how do your home crowd react? They cheer. They love it. They want more of it. Humble those barbarians, they say. It can be easy to forget that Caesar can be really brutal when his interests are at stake and that the Romans, who can seem so much like us at times, were brutal people living in brutal times and mercy was an exception, not a norm. Now, in that quote from Caesar I read, he talks about the law of nations. What is he talking about with that? He's talking about treating envoys with respect. Basically, Caesar says that every nation treats envoys as sacrosanct and that the Veneti clapping them in irons and taking them prisoner and trying to trade them for Roman hostages, which they had given up to Rome willingly, in quotes, is a war crime and that they needed to be taught a lesson that they cannot behave that way. Of course, army officers sent to collect grain aren't really envoys. So this is kind of a nonsense argument. They weren't really envoys, but what you could say is that Rome had a peace with the Veneti. Rome had dictated that peace. The Veneti obviously didn't like it and tried to change the terms of the peace by surprise capturing Roman officers, which Rome would probably still feel was in their right to punish. And Adrian Goldsworthy makes the point that Caesar's Roman audience wouldn't have cared less about the distinction of whether these guys are envoys or not. They were treacherously taken by these barbarian people. Time to teach them a lesson. Let's do it. Caesar also says that he sold all of the Veneti people into slavery. Now, this is unlikely that he got his hands on every single person of the Veneti tribe. But at least the ones that Caesar could easily get his hands on, he does sell them into slavery. But it seems highly doubtful he was hunting these people down through the forests of Gaul, you know, looking for every single one of them. And this is a big way that Caesar's making money while he's in Gaul. But it's not the only way. 
So that draws the Venetti campaign to a close. It's where we're going to stop talking about the Gallic Wars today. But this brings us to our next topic, which I've been meaning to cover for a while but haven't gotten to, but this segues into it nicely, is Caesar and his debts and how he's making this money in Gaul. Caesar was in debt for an astounding amount of money for almost the entirety of his life up to this point. In many ways, his story is the story of a man on the rise borrowing as much as he can to try to reach the top and then hoping to pay back those debts once he's on top. And as we've said, he is now on top. He's a proconsul waging war in Gaul. That's as high as you can get in Rome. And you better believe, as I've said before, he's making money hand over fist. And it's unclear exactly when, but at some point, Caesar's debts just don't seem to be an issue anymore. It's not as if the sources say that, yes, Caesar got rich and then he paid off all of his debts. They just sort of stopped mentioning his debts altogether. So either A, Caesar made so much money in Gaul that he was able to pay off all of his debts, or B, he made so much money that he was able to afford regular payments and therefore the debts aren't an issue anymore. We don't really know. Or C, he was now a five-year proconsul at the head of eight to ten legions. Try to make him pay if you can, right? <laughs> it could be any one of those three options. It could be that, yes, Caesar got rich, but he also decided he's not going to pay his debts because he's got this big army and, and you know, try to make me. Or it could be that he paid him off, or it could be that he was making payments. We really don't know. We just know that his debts weren't a problem and weren't really mentioned anymore. So then we come to how did Caesar make all this money? Well, we've already mentioned a few different ways, but many Roman proconsuls would rob the people of the provinces where they governed blind to pay off their debts. And Caesar may have done this too. Suetonius says, quote, He, meaning Caesar, was not particularly honest in money matters, either while a provincial governor or while holding office at Rome. End quote. Now, this doesn't seem like the same guy who made a career prosecuting greedy provincial governors as a younger man, right? That's what Caesar was famous for. He had made his career on prosecuting people that had fleeced the local provincials of their wealth. That being said, it wasn't uncommon for young aristocrats to be hypocritical in this way, to prosecute other people for stealing from provincials and then to grow up and go and steal from provincials. But still, all of that being said, let's keep in mind, Suetonius was prone to gossip. And which things he says are idle gossip and which ones are facts can be very difficult to tell apart. But regardless, there were other ways that we do know Caesar found to make money in Gaul in ways that were far more lucrative than even fleecing the provincials. So he's already won three campaigns. And in each of these campaigns, he and his army would capture huge numbers of human beings and sell them as slaves. They would sell them to merchants that would then sell them across the empire as slaves. And this was an extremely profitable business for Caesar and for his legionaries. And at least my non-professional historian opinion this was the number one way that Caesar made his money in Gaul. And the other way that Roman armies typically made money while fighting was via plunder. On this, Suetonius says, quote, In Gaul, he, meaning Caesar, plundered 
large and small temples of their votive offerings, and more often gave towns over to pillage because their inhabitants were rich than because they had offended him. As a result, he collected larger quantities of gold than he could handle, and began selling it in Italy in the provinces at 3,000 sesterces to the pound. End quote. Suetonius also says that Caesar would accept the surrender of villages in modern Spain and Portugal while he was pro-praetor there, and then sack them anyway for the money. Now, again, none of this seems to match up with the strategic thinker we've seen so far. We know Caesar can be brutal and ruthless, but he's not often those things for the sake of greed and for the sake of money. Suetonius also says that he begged Spanish allies for money to pay his debts. Again, doesn't seem like the person who's obsessed with their dignitas and with their pride and ego like Caesar was. Not to keep beating a dead horse, but one more thing that Suetonius says about Caesar is that as consul, Caesar stole 3,000 pounds of gold from the capital and replaced it with 3,000 pounds of bronze. Now, when Caesar was consul, I didn't mention this because it just seems so far-fetched that it seemed unbelievable. Because, one, how would you do that? How would you transport out 3,000 pounds of gold without anyone noticing? I mean, what is Caesar, like a bank robber, like a master thief? I mean, if he was going to be a thief, I think he probably would be a master thief since he's good at everything else he does. But still, somebody would notice, especially if this was written into the history books, right? Suetonius knew about it, or claims he knew about it. And yet there's no record of Cato howling, howling. Cato would be screaming about this from the rooftops that Caesar had stolen all this gold from Rome. So these are all ways that Suetonius cites Caesar making money and finding ways to make money, and they're pretty much all unethical. How many of them are true? It's up to you to decide. I have my opinions. I'm no professional historian, so take it for what it's worth. In the end, did Caesar steal from everyone he ever met? Or was he the generous man that was constantly giving gifts to all of his friends? Or did he steal from strangers and give gifts to his friends of the stolen goods? The reality I'm guessing is somewhere in the middle of all these things, right? But regardless of how Caesar made his money and whether he stole from the provincials and whether he stole from the capital, we do know that he's becoming outstandingly wealthy as a general in Gaul and he's making money hand over fist, and he can definitely cover his debts if he hasn't paid them off altogether, and he's spending this money lavishly on friends, acquaintances, and strangers in Rome. In fact, so much money is flooding into Caesar's coffers that he comes to rival or even surpass Pompey and Crassus in wealth, which is saying something. But never forget that all this money for Caesar is nothing but a tool, a tool to which he can use to progress his career and boost his already considerable prestige. In other words, to buy friends and influence people. And that is the end of episode 44 of the March of History. I'm going to end this episode like I did the last episode by reading two five-star reviews. So if you're somebody who's left reviews, stick around and you may hear your name. The first of the five-star reviews we have is from, ooh, it's a tough name, 
KB64648274 is, is the screen name. Uh, he gave a five-star review, said, very well done, and then said, if you have a passion for history or even just want to hear about great leaders of men throughout history, this is the podcast for you. Thank you, KB. I appreciate the kind words. appreciate the review. And thank you for your support. And thank you for listening. And the second review we have is from J underscore carbs. And he says, great deep dive. He goes on to say, I think I'm pretty knowledgeable when it comes to history, but I really learned a lot from this series. Really enjoying and looking forward to what comes next. Thank you, J carbs. Appreciate the kind words. And I'm glad you're enjoying the listening, enjoying the podcast. That's it for today, and if you haven't already and you listen on an Apple device, please, please, please go ahead and leave a five-star review with a little comment on what you like. It really helps the podcast to grow. You can also leave reviews on, I believe, Audible, maybe Amazon. There's a few different services you can leave reviews on. So if you do leave a five-star review, you will eventually get a shout-out on the March of History, and I will read your name on the podcast, which is, is kind of cool in that way. Now, in the next episode, we will continue with Caesar fighting the Gallic Wars, but I need to get going to Rome where I'm going to see the Colosseum, the Pantheon, the Roman Forum. And I have a whole bucket list of items I'm going to film videos in front of and explore for you and do a little narration on a YouTube series. All of that in Rome, in Pompey, or Pompeii, in, uh, in Naples. So I have a lot to prepare to do that. And I know these episodes have not been coming out as often recently. But don't worry, the March of History is not losing steam. I am just have my attention divided between too many different things right now. The March of History will continue. And I will talk to you next time on the March of History. <laughs>